It's a uh, pleasure to be with you folks today. When uh, Kenny uh, first called uh, to ask about uh, doing a plenary for us to, to come and present our story to you folks, I said, 25 minutes? What can an attorney say in 25 minutes? <laughs> uh, in rural Pennsylvania, there's 80% conservative Republicans. Uh, that's the, those are the folks that we work with in Pennsylvania. They're rural municipal officials whose primary job is to take care of the roads, to plow the roads in the winter, uh, to uh, take care and patch the roads in the summer. They're the folks that wear the steel-toed work boots and the John Deere hats, and as an attorney in Texas that we work with likes to say, belt buckles that would make a Texan proud. Now, these folks in rural Pennsylvania have been dumped on for years. After all, rural communities being dumped on and poor communities being dumped on is nothing new. Central Pennsylvania has had its share of toxic waste incinerators, asphalt plants, low-level radioactive waste storage facilities. It's nothing new to these folks to be dumped on. But six years ago, something else happened. Agribusiness and sewage sludge corporations set their sights on those rural communities, just like the corporations before them to drive the siting of hog factory farms and the dumping of sewage sludge on farms in that rural area of Pennsylvania. So what happens when the unlikeliest of people in the unlikeliest of places begin to simply say no to the corporate vision of agriculture that's being imposed upon them? What happens when people dare to aspire grandly believing that community majorities should be able to define their own sustainable vision for agriculture and therefore exercise their democratic authority to reject the vision of farming designed by a corporate few? What happens when people become disobedient? By believing that they can make law to codify their values, their interests, their goals, their futures, to build the types of communities that they want and that they need. In 1998, working with these most unlikeliest of people, in the most unlikeliest of places, we began to find out. In that year, a revolt of sorts began in rural Pennsylvania, and it's been unfolding ever since. It was in that year that over 300 rural municipal governments, driven by their own rural communities, their own citizens, rebelled against a corporate agribusiness minority that was intent on imposing an unsustainable vision of farming upon them. Now, unlike other battles in the past, they refused to be diverted into treating factory farms and the land application of sewage sludge simply as land use issues. They refused to accept the opinions of the Penn State corporate farming experts who held forth that factory farming was somehow more efficient, more advanced, and more modern. They learned that the regulatory system provided a corporate written script for them to follow, spending decades and dollars enforcing environmental regulations that even when working perfectly, simply regulate the rate at which we destroy our communities and our planet. Perhaps most importantly, they learn from other experiences in other communities that most times, the only thing that environmental regulations regulate is environmentalists.
They learned, as Richard Grossman has been teaching for the past decade, and he ex has explained on this very binary stage, that every single environmental issue isn't a single issue at all, but can be traced directly to the subordination by the law of the rights of communities to the rights of the corporate few. They learned that the bullies who run this place line their pockets and enhance their power by both stopping majorities from forming, by stopping people from linking hands for a sustainable future, but also when forced, they pull out the Constitution. They wield the law, they wield the Constitution as corporate rights to override those majorities when they have the energy to form. And with that understanding, our rural communities began to create majorities by reframing the otherwise single issues that they were faced with in rural Pennsylvania. They asserted that we wouldn't have factory hog farms except for this corporatization of agriculture in this country, in which four corporations now control over 70% of hog production in the United States. 70% of hog production, four corporations. In the United States, we've lost 300,000 farmers over the past 20 years. We're always nice about that statistic, that we lost them somehow, we just can't find them. <laughs> They've been eliminated. They've been eliminated. 3,000 once independent livestock family farmers in Pennsylvania have been eliminated in the last 15 years. Perhaps the most startling statistic of all, in 2001, death by suicide became the number one cause of death for farmers, outpassing equipment-related deaths on the farm. These rural communities began to assert that we wouldn't have land-applied sewage sludge except for the corporatization of waste management, in which several large waste corporations now reap hundreds of millions of dollars in our money municipal authority money, to haul sludge from treatment plants and dump it on rural communities. And while most of the environmental groups that they called, from rural Pennsylvania communities picking up the phone calling environmental organizations in the state, while they were focused on writing and enforcing regulations to get factory farms and sludge corporations to cause a little less harm, our rural communities were focused on saying no and building majorities that had the authority to build sustainable agriculture in their communities. And when they did so, when they turned to the path less traveled, they discovered that they were not the first. They were not the first to make the shift from attempts to regulate corporate farming after the fact to a focus on eliminating corporate farming altogether by making law. They discovered that beginning in 1904 in places like Oklahoma, continuing into the late 90s in eight other Midwestern states, that community majorities in those nine states had worked to protect a family farmer-based marketplace by passing statewide laws that ban agribusiness corporations from owning or controlling farms.
They learned that in places like South Dakota and Nebraska, they didn't just pass laws by initiative, they passed constitutional amendments that made part of their state constitutions ban agribusiness corporations from owning or controlling farms. And so without pride of authorship in Pennsylvania, we stole those models. <laughs> we, we took Amendment E from South Dakota and we made them into local laws in Pennsylvania. And just to be a real pain in the ass, we put a citizen supervision in them to allow citizens to enforce them when local governments would. So what happened when we took these local laws that we had drafted and we sent them out to our community of 300, 400 rural municipal governments faced with these issues, factory farming and the land application of sludge? Well, first one passed it, then five, then 10, then 40, then 50. We're at close to 100 municipal governments in Pennsylvania now that have taken on corporate farming directly, not to regulate it to cause a little less harm, but to say no. Now, when close to 100 municipal governments out of 1,000 rural municipal governments in Pennsylvania start taking on the largest agribusiness corporations in the world, and not just the corporations, but their trade associations like the Farm Bureau and, and agribusiness trade associations that front for them in the legislature, as everybody knows, when you do that kind of work, there's an equal and opposite reaction to every action. <laughs> And when you're dealing with the largest agribusiness and sludge corporations in the world, the reaction tends not to be equal at all. <laughs> For three years, those agribusiness corporations have had their agribusiness-supported legislators come right at those rural communities starting in 2001. And precisely because those rural communities didn't pass ordinances dealing with parts per million, or water withdrawal, or the adverse environmental impacts caused by these facilities. Because they took a different path, a democratic path, about majorities making laws to implement their values, their interests, and their goals, the legislature had to come at them differently. They had to draft and introduce legislation that didn't change the parts per million to allow a little more pollution. Instead, they had to draft and introduce legislation that sought to strip away the lawmaking power of those rural governments. Our rural township governments, the unlikeliest of people and the unlikeliest of places, had programmed them to come after them in a certain way. Not over parts per billion on data that very few people understood, but on the ground of democracy. And for the first time in Pennsylvania, in the recorded memories of the lobbyists, the number one Farm Bureau legislative priority, the number one priority of the agribusiness corporations in Pennsylvania, it went down in 2001. And it went down in 2002. And it went down for another very large reason. Not just that they had programmed the legislators to come after them in an anti-democratic piece of legislation, but because the coalition that we reached out to was much different than any other coalition that had ever before been seen in Pennsylvania. 
Yes, it was cranky, <laughs> but it was big. And who were the members? The United Mine Workers came on board because their workers had gotten sick from sludge being spread on mine reclamation sites. The Pennsylvania Farmers Union, the AFL-CIO, the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture, and yes, the environmental groups came in because they saw it as being more effective. Because in each one of those municipal governments that had passed these ordinances, reframing it into something else other than just an environmental issue, in those townships, not one new teaspoonful of sludge has been spread. Not one new factory farm has been cited. Now, in addition to using the legislators at their disposal, corporations also have something else at their disposal, the courts. And so they picked on the littlest guy, one of the most rural townships in Pennsylvania they picked on. And what did they do? They filed a lawsuit. And what did the lawsuit say? It said that that anti-corporate farming law that you'd adopted as an ordinance, it violates our corporate constitutional rights. Okay. It violates our due process and equal protection rights under the corporation. Because haven't you heard, silly folks? Corporations are persons. And on the front page of the complaint, it said, we are corporations, we are persons. And your ordinance, even though you formed a majority to codify your values, interests, and goals, your ordinance is unconstitutional. Unconstitutional. So our folks in Pennsylvania, they got a copy of the complaint. We made a bajillion, jillion copies of it and spread it over our rural communities. And our rural supervisors, those guys with the John Deere hats and the, the shit kicker boots, <laughs> they got a copy of this complaint. And they said, now we understand what Tom was talking about all those years. It's not abstract. It's not academic, this corporate rights concept. It hits us, and it hits us when we manage to build the majorities to move law forward. So we give various updates to township governments, rural governments, community groups across the state about where this stuff sits. And I always remember, two years ago, standing in one of those places giving an update, and a rural township supervisor put up his hand and he said, oh, Mr. Lindsay, this is great that we can pass sludge ordinances and factory farm ordinances. We're even moving into sprawl and land development issues about the corporatization of sprawl. And that's good stuff. But what good is it if we pass an ordinance, one of these issue ordinances? We can still get sued, and we have to spend $100,000 going through depositions and discovery. We have to go through that whole process of being sued and being defendants. And we look back at them and said, what do you want us to do? We're a small organization. We've helped you fight off these legislative attempts for three years. We've built this cranky coalition statewide to stop the legislation from going through. We're now defending this lawsuit dealing with corporate constitutional rights. What do you want us to do now? And they said, what we want. We want to eliminate corporate constitutional rights at the municipal level. So we said, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> and so we went back to the office. 
and we began drafting the Corporate Rights Elimination Ordinance. It strips corporations of Bill of Rights protections and of protections under the Contracts and Commerce Clause of the Constitution in those municipalities that adopt those laws. So we put the ordinance out there. We were wondering if there were any disobedient folks out there. And it turned out there were. Once again, these unlikeliest of people in the unlikeliest of places began passing it. First, a place called Porter Township in Clarion County, an hour and a half north of Pittsburgh, unanimously voted to adopt a binding law becoming the first in the country to pass a binding ordinance eliminating corporate constitutional rights. Another township followed in early 2003, another rural municipal government. And so through the last six years for us now, and we're really at the beginning of the beginning now, it took us six years to get here, to figure out this apparatus under which communities are ruled, communities are governed, it's not by majorities, it's by the corporate few, and we've discovered some new tools. Up till now, our job has been drafting ordinances, local laws that municipalities can adopt, binding laws that municipalities can adopt to put their values, interests, and goals into law. We've started writing constitutions now. We've started drafting local charters under the home rule provisions in Pennsylvania. It means that we're in the business of constitution making now, not just ordinances. Because for the last six years, we've been defining what a sustainable community looks like by default. We've been saying that sustainable communities don't look like certain things. They don't have agribusiness corporations operating in them. They don't have sludge corporations operating in them. We've been defining by default. When we started the charter writing process, we had to think, what do we want? We're so used to not asking what do we want, but what can we get? And this process allowed our rural municipal officials to start talking about what they wanted. And one of the things that folks in one of our rural communities wanted was to write about the rights of nature. Yeah. I always get in trouble for saying this, but in the United States, we've never had an environmental movement. We've never had an environmental movement. The reason is that movements in this country drive rights into the Constitution. They drive rights into the fundamental governing frameworks of communities and the country and states. That's what constitutions do. We've never had an environmental movement in this country because the environmental movement has never sought to drive constitutional rights for nature into the Constitution. Okay. Now, when we look back at other movements, they didn't screw around with regulating things. The abolitionists didn't ask for a slavery protection agency. Right? The abolitionists drove the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments into the Constitution. 
The suffragists drove their own amendment into the Constitution. That's what movements do. In the United States, nature has no rights. Ecosystems have no rights. Rivers have no rights. Bears, cougars, trees, no rights. They're property. They're property under the law. There was a point in this country where people were property. So what happens when we start writing charters that recognize the inalienable rights of nature? Not their usefulness to us or their value to us, but their rights in and of themselves. And what happens when those provisions give people the power to stand in as trustees, to litigate the rights of nature? That's where it gets exciting. <laughs> now these charters, what else are we doing? Well, we're writing in a guarantee for independent family farmers to access markets. We're expanding rights through law, not just by begging legislators to make a change. People used to call the office, hey, we've heard something's happening in Pennsylvania, we want to know what it is. And more than that, we want to copy it. We want to do it where we're at. And we used to spend three to four hours on the phone trying to explain what's happening in Pennsylvania to them. Until somebody, much brighter than us, obviously, <laughs> said, why don't you create a school? Why don't you create a school to teach this organizing model? of taking single issues and reframing them about corporate uh, corporations and corporate rights, and then moving organizing campaigns based on that principle, not just on minimizing adverse environmental impacts. And we said, sure, we're going to do that. And we set one up at Wilson College in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. To our amazement, folks from 14 states have flown into those schools, those three-day intensive training seminars. We've now opened schools at Boston College. We're opening one up in Black Mountain, North Carolina, near Asheville. One in California, one in Colorado. In Santa Fe, New Mexico, we're having one at the end of January. Okay. Now, a lot of folks find this stuff kind of discouraging and depressing. The concept that we can't deal with toxics, we can't deal with factory farms, we can't deal with sludge, we can't deal with water privatization, we can't deal with sprawl, we can't deal with GMOs. Until we deal with the power of the corporate few to define our culture and defy by law our ability to build sustainable communities and protect the natural world. And to close, I'd like to read a quote from Sam Smith. He's the editor of the Progressive Review. Okay. Sam's not discouraged. Sam writes, quote, in a perverse way, our predicament makes life simpler. We have clearly lost what we have lost. We can give up our futile efforts to preserve the illusion and turn our energies instead to the construction of a new time. It is this willingness to walk away from the seductive power of the present that first divides the mere reformer from the rebel. The courage to emigrate from one's own ways in order to meet the future, not as an entitlement, but as a frontier. Thank you.